Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. The young man had come far, but he had one more challenge to overcome before he could claim his prize. The stakes were high. He had bet 100 of his finest horses. He turned to face his opponent on the mat, ready to wrestle for an exquisite prize, the hand of a beautiful woman. But she wouldn't be watching from the sidelines. Oh no. She stepped into the ring to face him, and she was undefeated. The suitor knew the deal when he stepped up to wrestle Kutuyun. He had wagered 100 horses, and if he won, she would marry him. If not, she would keep his horses. Kutuyun was born around 1260, and her extended family controlled one of the mightiest empires the world had ever known. It had been founded nearly 60 years earlier by her great-grandfather, Temujin, the son of a Mongol chieftain. Temujin grew to be a strong, powerful warrior and would unite the Mongolian tribes, leading them to a conquest that stretched across the Eurasian continent. He managed to capture territory from China to Poland all the way down to Gaza in an unprecedented sweep of brutality and power. Many will know him by his chosen name, Genghis Khan, meaning universal ruler. Genghis Khan created an era of prosperity for the Mongolian people. He stabilized taxes and created a new military-style feudal government under which trade flourished, religious tolerance was practiced, and technology in the arts advanced. Gunpowder, stirrups, and leather armor were all created under his reign. When Genghis died in 1227, his children and later grandchildren took control over different sections of the empire. But by the time Kutuyang was born, the family was at each other's throats. Kaido, Kutuyang's father, certainly had great ambitions for his section of the empire, and he relied heavily on his children in military conflict. Kutuyang was raised alongside her 14 brothers and learned to ride horses, shoot a bow and arrow, raid, and wrestle with the best of them. She was tall and strong, and there were very few who could match her. The wrestling of that time and place was very different from how it is today. The match could get incredibly violent and often involved direct hits like punches and kicks toward an opponent. There were no weight classes or experience levels. Anyone could wrestle anyone, and they didn't stop until the opponent was on the ground. Although she never backed down from an insult, she was incredibly disciplined and was a fierce warrior in her father's military campaigns. Much of the information about Kutu Young comes from one of history's greatest tourists, Marco Polo. He wrote that in battle, Kutu Young was quick, fearless, and willing to take risks. Sometimes she would quit her father's side, he wrote, and make a dash at the host of the enemy and seize some man thereabouts, as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird and carry him to her father and this she did many a time. Genghis Khan's descendants were a dynasty, and like any other dynasty, they needed heirs. Given Kutu Young was her father's favorite, any of her children would likely succeed him, so he was eager for her to marry. But she had a condition. She wouldn't marry anyone who couldn't defeat her in a wrestling match. Kaido had agreed, although he might not have known what he was getting into. So the news spread that if a suitor was willing to wager horses, which were and are extremely valuable to the Mongolian people, they could enter a match to marry Kutuyung. The number of horses wagered varies from source to source, but Kutuyung always won, 
and her herd grew to a staggering size. Despite the track record, suitors still came to challenge her, confident that they would be different from the previous ones. One story tells of a young suitor who was cockier than most and bet 1,000 horses that he would be able to best Kutu Young. Kaido and his wife liked this candidate and privately asked Kutu Young if she would swallow her pride and lose on purpose so that they could add the young man to the family. Kutu Young smiled and wiped the floor with him. She did marry, though, but the records are a bit sketchy on who. Some claim that it was a loyal lieutenant of her father's. Others say that she fell in love with Gazen, the Khan of Persia. There's even a wilder story about her falling in love with an assassin sent by Kublai Khan of the Yuan dynasty in China to kill her father. There's no record of whether any of them beat her in a wrestling match, though. Kaido meant for his daughter and her children to succeed him, but her many brothers weren't thrilled with that notion. From here, Kutu Young's story starts to disappear from history. Her brothers challenged her position as heir when their father died. She may have clung to power for a time, but one of her brothers was appointed to be the great Khan instead. Kutu Young died just five years after her father, and from there, largely disappeared from history in the West. But although she lost her position, no one remembers Kutu Young as a loser. Enthralled crowds had watched as she stepped into the ring with one hopeful suitor after another, and trounced each and every one of them. Her sorry opponents would join the ranks of the many men that she had bested, and walk away without a bride and fewer horses. Today, Kutu Young is considered one of the great figures in Mongolian history, and the traditional regalia and victory dances of Mongolian wrestlers are all designed to honor her. Jeffrey was having an excellent day. School had gone well, he'd gotten to spend time with his friends, and it was shaping up to be a beautiful afternoon. What more could a little boy in 1962 possibly want? His father, Robert, was not having a good day. His boss hadn't liked a couple of the pitches he'd been working on for a big project and had rejected them, which sent Robert and his brother Richard, also a business partner, into a panic. Robert and Richard needed to come up with new ideas quickly, or else they risked displeasing their boss and potentially losing out on the project. When Jeffrey got home from school, he found his dad in a bad mood. He later recalled the house being dark when he got home, as his father had closed all of the shades to better concentrate and hopefully beat his writer's block, or maybe just to wallow. Still, Robert rallied when little Jeffrey got home and asked him how school had been. Like most five-year-olds, Jeffrey launched into an explanation of every little detail of his day, before getting to his really big story. It was vaccination day at school, and he had lined up with all of his classmates to get the polio vaccine. Schools were instrumental in the distribution of crucial vaccines to children, and the polio vaccine is one of the most well-known rollouts. To most parents, it was a minor miracle. Polio had plagued children for generations. This disease attacks the nerve cells and even the central nervous system. It causes muscles to deteriorate, which can result in paralysis, its most well-known symptom as well as trouble regulating breathing and even death. It largely affected children, though adults weren't immune if they hadn't already caught the disease. Pictures of children in iron lungs or trying to relearn to walk with the help of canes and crutches were a common sight. Polio seemed to come and go like clockwork. Every summer, there would inevitably be an outbreak when kids went to the public pool or other communal activities. These outbreaks never reached the catastrophic levels that we might immediately jump to, though. 
They peaked in the United States in 1952 with nearly 60,000 cases. Certainly, bubonic plague, the Spanish flu, and more recently COVID-19 had higher impacts on the population, but that didn't mean news of a polio outbreak wasn't met with alarm. America's most famous polio victim, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, helped found an organization called the March of Dimes, which would dedicate time and funds to researching polio in hopes of finding a vaccine. In 1938, he appealed to the public as the polio epidemic during the Great Depression worsened and he asked for donations. Popular singer Eddie Cantor joked that the public should send in dimes to the president's organization, and it worked. Roughly 2.7 million dimes made their way to the White House, and further donations followed. This campaign is what landed FDR's face on the dime to memorialize his contributions to medical history. Like the ice bucket challenge for ALS, the March of Dimes, as it came to be called, had a huge effect on polio research. The organization appointed Jonas Salk to lead the vaccine research efforts in 1949, four years after President Roosevelt died. Salk struck gold in the 1950s, and his vaccine was given for the first time on February 23rd of 1954 to some children at Arsenal Elementary in Pittsburgh. This was just the beginning. Soon, schools nationwide lined their children up to receive this crucial vaccine, and parents breathed a sigh of relief as their kids walked out into the world with a bit more protection. Salk's vaccine, and later Albert Sabin's, became an expected part of the school year for first, second, or third graders. Admittedly, these safety benefits were the last thing on kids' minds as they lined up to get the jab, and even the promise of a piece of candy afterwards couldn't keep some of them from freaking out. Like many of us, Jeffrey hadn't been a fan of needles. Robert knew his son hadn't done well with shots in the past. In fact, Jeffrey had tried to run away from nurses who were trying to give him them. Robert was surprised his son had let anyone give him a shot with no fuss and asked it if it had hurt. Jeffrey grinned and said no, that the nurse had given him a little cup with a sugar cube in it, and that the shot was inside the cube. Robert stared at his son for a moment, and then went to call his brother. Jeffrey had no other way of knowing that he had just helped make musical history. Richard and Robert Sherman had been hard up for a song idea for days, and the team had been going round and round with author P.L. Travers for years trying to make a movie about her beloved characters. The Sherman Brothers' song, Through the Eyes of Love, had just been rejected, and they needed to come up with something to replace it fast, hence the writer's block. After all, no one wanted to disappoint the great Walt Disney. Jeffrey's conversation with his father about an ordinary day at school had sparked an extraordinary idea that would resonate with generations of children who didn't want to take their medicine. And they would learn that lesson in the film Mary Poppins. Because sometimes all you do need is a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.